Welcome to the Don't Die podcast, sponsored by Aloe Treatment Centers. They're out in Malibu. They're in Silver Lake. It's a treatment center I started with some friends. We want you to get the right treatment, the right program for you, and stop dying. Stop dying, Chuck, though Chuck's not here. Stop dying, Mike. Mike, Mike always stop dying. There's no way you're going to die. I will stop dying. Well, I stopped dying 36 years. 26 years ago. God, oh, I'm man, so, you just I'm add so 10 years to it. <laughs> so, you know, you pegged it the last bit, podcast that I, time is just like not my. <laughs> it's not your area of expertise. Not my, I'm like, oh, that happened just yesterday. Well, no, even I was talking to Flea the other day and we we're trying to figure out uh, 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 what happened at a certain time in our lives he was way off he was like three years <laughs> off and i was like well, i don't think I, we even knew each other in, in 1981 i love and that he, it's kind of crazy how the older you get the weirder time gets yes i but i have i have significant things in my life because i can go back on the internet and look it up right so yeah. i know i was in new york city in 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 fall of 1980 because i went and saw the gun club at the peppermint lounge near times square and that you can look it up when did gun club play yeah the peppermint I, would, lounge. I do that all so the time I was, yeah. so i thought that was like in 1981 it was in the 1980 so do you know what i was doing for years until i finally got it i was going back and looking at my passport and i knew that i was in brazil and i had th- 30 days sober Oh, right. And I didn't the even know my own Rio. sober date. I kept thinking like I had this much and it would like undercut it and over. And I was like, I yeah, thought it was Christmas I, Day. It's Christmas Day, but it's 92. So oh, you thought it was like what, 93? Or it's 91. <laughs> <laughs> it's 91. Well, and I it just turned 92. I don't know. Anyways, it always confuses me because it's Christmas Day. Well, and I have my bracelet from jail mounted in my office it's in my office in claremont and it says right on there the date that i was booked february 3rd 1996 and i got out march 16th 1996 i was in there for 43 days whatever it is yeah 43 days and so it's always around you got to keep reminders as you get older but Um, the thing i'm really hmm. interested about somebody said something funny to me the other day i'm so hard on millennials yet i love millennials and i get get all this grief i went on the skinny confidential podcast and was millennial and down and the fact is <laughs> the fact is you two things a little two things i'm a little harsh i'm the, a little i'm harsh on myself and then so, the screen generation is coming up now so. yeah the well they're called generation z if you're 20 years old you're generation z right now so Interestingly, there's a bunch of pop stars coming up that are like Generation Z, like uh, Billie Eilish that I always talk about, 17 years old. Um, And they just have a completely more aloof take on reality. (laughs) Like, so a friend of mine said this morning, I'm dealing with a lot of Generation Z people. It's a YouTube, like, manager of YouTube artists, whatever. And he said, listen, um, Dealing with Z, Generation Z makes you long for the responsibility of millennials. Oh my God. Because, <laughs> like, true. literally, you can have a meeting with the Generation Z person and it's really important, important, and they don't come and they don't feel bad about it. And they're just like, oh, I forgot, man. Okay, we'll catch up later. And they just hang up on you. 
Yeah. Like at least millennials know that they fucked up and feel all apologetic. <laughs> like, yeah. Generation Z are like, right. oh, dude, I forgot. I'll call you later, man. <laughs> like my brain would explode if somebody did that to me. I would literally explode. Whatever it's called when you turn to fire, that would happen. If I was waiting for an hour and a half for somebody, and then you finally they answer their phone and they go, oh, man, I forgot. All right, catch you later. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's me or or if it's uh, the way that I brought up my 14-year-old, but um, she is just like, wait, she's as far as like... Um, She's a generation Z. Yeah, acceptable to like uh, people that have a different, uh, uh, you know, gender changes, this and that, and blah, all this stuff that's like kind of radical to me. She's just like, what, Dad? That's you know, it's the it's, way it is. It's the way it is. Well, she knows no other way, you know. And I'm kind of like, oh God, you know, kind of unique and special. I mean, you and know, different. I'm accepting of it, and I think. But how much of it is just like? they're bombarded and they're just numb from reality. Like I do, I do think that our society is so sick. It's gotten so sick in our lifetime. So sick. Right. And that's one thing, you know, I'm writing this book with Dr. Dina that works here and it's called how to keep your kid out of rehab. And we're going to have her on the podcast. But some of the stuff I've thought is like, you can't rescue your small children. I don't think you're a rescuer, right? Mm, I know no. your ex-wife is not. So your kids got to fall down, and yeah. you stood there and said, you're okay, get up. We're not helicopter. No, yeah. no, no, no. You're, no. You said to your daughters when they fell down, you're okay. Are you okay? You're okay. Exactly. I know because I've seen you do it. Yeah. Well, Parents come rushing. I came rushing to Elvis. I came rushing to Elijah to rescue them, and that never... They don't even have to assess whether they're hurt or not, right? They, they, they don't have to, they're not separate entities, right? There's no separation. So yeah. allowing your children to fall, we let Sydney fall all the time. She falls down. She, sometimes you think she doesn't have a, you know, there's a d d disease where kids can't feel pain. I mean, she fell down flat hard on the cement on the back of her head and we didn't rescue her and she just sat up and she was kind of crying and I said, are you okay? And she said, yeah, I'm okay. And then I felt the back of her head and it was a huge lump. Yeah. Right? But with Elvis, he would have cried and cried and cried and he'd need ice pack and we need to do this and we need to do that, right? And I don't, I just think that you have to find that happy medium of not rescuing but reassuring, right? So there's one rule that in that we're just rescuing and controlling right off the bat when they're two and three years old and it just never stops. The other thing is, when is an adult an adult? That's another thing that I've talked about in this podcast and we're addressing in the book. When is an adult an adult? When do they get to make their own decisions and live or die by their own decisions and they don't get rescued? Is it So apparently there's nobody that considers an 18-year-old an adult anymore. Right, I, just that's don't. weird. That's it's, really weird, right? Yeah. I was a fucking adult at eighteen. I was an adult at sixteen, but somehow eighteen is just oh my god. They they just got out of school and da da da, and they can't you know da da da. I'm okay. Well, then at twenty one, are they an adult? Yeah. Mm, some are, some aren't. I've been asking hundreds of people like, when is an adult an adult nowadays? Twenty four, twenty six. Well, that's and, when they. 
are no longer on can be on your 26 is 26 to cut off i guess are you finally a full-fledged adult in america at 26 do you get kicked out at 26 <laughs> yeah you get you get the boot you get no insurance and no place to live and no car and no cell phone you're just on your own 26 26 okay they're not get let's your agree own with insurance. that so people are full-fledged that, adults till they're 26 though prior generations my dad was a full-fledged adult at 11 I was a full-fledged functioning adult at 16 or 17. My um, dad went into the Merchant Marines at 18 years old. Right. Yeah. And so we've just, and we've done this as a society. And then we wonder why everybody's standing around failing to launch and not able to take care of themselves and don't understand the world or the society. We did it. The baby boomers did it. The Gen Xers did it. Yeah. We let this all happen. Right? Yeah. We got to rescue everybody. You're a bad person if you don't rescue. You don't care about people. Me caring about someone and rescuing them are two different things. Right? We learned that in drugs, drug addiction 12 step 101. Right? If somebody doesn't want help, why, why, why waste your time? Yeah. Right? I mean, the big book says it, a lot of recovery kind of stuff that I was taught, like, you know, try your best to help somebody that doesn't seem to want help, but at a certain point, move on to somebody that does want help. Exactly, yeah. Right? Well, how come if the 12-step world is only based on the real world, but the real world doesn't do that anymore? At a certain point, you know, you have to be able to say to your kid, you know. Well, and it was written a long time ago when adults were 18. Right, 17. You could, you could join the Army at 17 and when they wrote the big book of AA. Yeah, if you just lied. Yeah, you just go into the, you know. Say, uh, no, I'm 18. World War, World War II, there was 15-year-olds saying they were 18. Right, and I think probably the, uh, you know, the people putting them in the army were just like, yeah, okay, it's fine, you know. So the argument from academia, which is the universities, the control, like what is right and what is wrong is, well, they're not really fully framed, formed, formed brains and blah, 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 blah. Well, I don't know about all that, but I know that our society is way sicker and and we've been living along these politically correct, uh, supposedly proper ways of child rearing and parenting and schools and all this kind of stuff. And we have a way worse society and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that can't even function. So we got to do something. And so I'm not calling for a dramatic shift. I'm just saying simple stuff like don't rescue your kid when they're little. When they're little. Let them learn that when you stand up on the couch, you're going to fall down. Right, right, and and be there and be present with them when they're on the ground and they're and make sure they're not seriously hurt. But if they're just a bump or it's just scared, you don't need to comfort them and make the world team all right again. You need to say, hey, you know, you're all right. Get up, come on, let's sit down. And I I've been doing it. I did it with Elvis yesterday. We were at Universal Studios, and. Uh, with Gibby and and his son and family, and Gibby was here on a book signing thing for you don't know. No. Right. If you've never heard of Gibby or the Butthole Surfers, Amazing. you better fucking wake up. Corn, <laughs> what's that one? Corn. Listen to a yeah. song called "Going Down to Florida." <laughs> well, and, and Gibby is just a genius. He's just the know? greatest guy. Just, so he had a book signing party. This book about the butthole surfers, and and then we went to Universal Studios yesterday. And Elvis is scared of the Universal Studios ride because we went on it when he was about three and a half. And there's a real scary part where the monkey 
The Gorilla. You ever been on the Universal Studios tour? No, but I know what it's you're called getting Skull to. Island, and there's this three-dimensional gorilla. You have three-dimensional glasses. It jumps all over the car, and the car shakes, and it seems like it's picking it up and dropping it and all this kind of stuff. And, may you know, is it inappropriate for three-and-a-half-year-olds? Not according to Universal Studios, right? So I didn't know better five years ago, so it took him and he was kind of scared and he's always been kind of scared of that but we're going now when he's almost nine his three-year-old sister's going all of his friends are going and he had like i don't want to go on the ride and right, he was right. crying and yeah. he was scared and i said listen to me elvis you it have to traumatic for him yeah but i said you have to face this yeah you can't just avoid what you're scared of I'm going on it, your sister's going on it, your stepmom's going on it, Satchel's going on it, Gibby's going on it, His, the other kids that are here are going on it, we're going on it. And all the kids were real supportive, and they were like, Elvis, I know I'm scared too, but it's going to be okay. And we all went on it, Elvis went on it. He wasn't. He didn't cry, he didn't freak out, it was good experience. Afterwards, everybody's high-fiving him for facing his fear. Yeah. He walked away from that with great positive reinforcement for himself now on the other hand you can take him to a psychiatrist to figure out why he's so scared of going on a roller coaster ride and dig into this never-ending trauma and psychobabble and for the end or you can just face your fear and now you don't have to be scared of that and that's one good thing that you've conquered and we got over it and i made a mistake when you were younger but now you dealt with it when you're older this kind of stuff needs to be done by parent yeah no i agree i read uh g gordon liddy's biography a long time Time ago where he put the palm of his hand over a match or whatever yeah and he strapped himself into a tree because he was afraid of lightning so during a storm he took a belt and he climbed the <laughs> highest tree in his yard he would strap himself with his belt to a branch and rode the storm out it's called aversion therapy he was doing it even though he didn't know what he was doing the most radical one was he was afraid of rats so he killed a rat and he cooked it and he ate it Oh <laughs> I was fascinated by G. Gordon Liddy. Yeah, he's a freakoid. He's the one yeah. that put his hand over yes. the matches and mm-hmm. let his flesh burn to show how tough he was. Yeah, he's um, a trip. I don't know that you, know, you need to go that extreme. When your kid is stuck in fear. But there is a, something about facing your fear. Yeah, facing fear a little bit. I, you don't want to traumatize people, and I'm not here advocating trauma. I'm saying that we've become too weak-willed and feeble-minded about our children and they're becoming unable to function generation after generation uh, to do things that are uncomfortable. The example being um, school sucks. School sucks. Eventually, I see a time if we continue to go down this road where parents will not, will not make their children go to school because they don't like it. Yeah, right. Right? Yeah. They, they, they shouldn't have to do that. They shouldn't have homework because it's so hard. It makes them stressed out. Like, where does it end where we let children dictate how the society works, right? And yeah. I think that there's a movement coming back like, listen, you can, let's buck up a little bit here. Let's kind of try to have some semblance of personal autonomy and personal responsibility because our society is falling apart from all this kind of babying of people and then they go out into the world and they the world is harsh and ugly and difficult and boring and stupid i mean it's really not a pleasant thing when you're 21 22 23 going out into the world i i it certainly wasn't for me right 
right. at 21 to try to have your own life and your own apartment and whatever, you could barely survive. That's what being 21 is, right? right. But if you just live at home because it's easier, when do you ever feel face it's how hard it is? I remember, you know, where did I live? When I was 21, I lived on, uh, remember Hollywood Boulevard above the pizza parlor, right? <clears throat> Many a time, me and Keith used to go to a bunch of lunch and steal all the food and Ziplocs and put them in our jackets, and that's what we ate all week long. Right. Shakey's Pizza used to have all this all-you-can-eat chicken and and uh, pizza, and for eight ninety nine. A box five, of macaroni only cost twenty five cents. Yeah, and you that's didn't how really you need the milk. But if you just live at your parents' house because that's too difficult for you, and you just have all the best food that your mom buys or your dad buys that's in the refrigerator and you just eat all the best food and just live at home, I don't know that you learn all the lessons that you need to learn for a long, thriving adulthood. And I think a lot of it is the crime has been elevated in our society now. No, but I don't think it's any worse. It's not any uh, worse than it was in the 80s. It's not. The crime rates are down. Violent crime is down since the 80s. It's the magnifying of it in media constantly. That could be true, sure. Yeah, right. I get you. <laughs> but I'll give you an example. I'm a streetwise motherfucker. Yeah. Because of drugs, because of living in Hollywood, because of being interested in street knowledge and culture and whatever. So when I go to Brazil, I know how to get around. I know what to look for. I know when things are heavy and you should fucking walk the other way. I know as soon as I turn a corner in Brazil when I was living there, I knew this is not not this isn't the street I need to go down. I'm no. going to walk two more blocks up to it's more of a thoroughfare that's more well lit and doesn't have a bunch of drug addicts yeah, exactly, in the alley. Well, dumb motherfuckers that never learn that shit are the ones that get robbed in Brazil. So you hear all these stories of Americans robbed. Yeah, it's all the dumb motherfuckers that have no street knowledge, no street sense. And then Brazil gets labeled this horrible place. No, it's a fucking beautiful place. It's an amazing place. It's a place where you started the first 30 days of your sobriety. It's one of my five favorite countries in the world. Yeah, But Americans think it's scary and bad and there's dangerous and whatever. Yeah, if you're a dumbass that walks down the wrong street wearing a Rolex watch going, hey guys, do you know where the fancy part of town is you're gonna get robbed guess what if you go to south central that way you're gonna get robbed if you go to east st louis that way you're gonna get robbed if you go to to bedsty new york you're gonna get robbed right but yeah. they never go there they go to these you know vacation retreat places like brazil or jamaica and then they claim i was robbed they came by i was so scared they stole my watch and my wallet well what are you doing with the fucking watch and wallet it's because the street people can see that fear <laughs> they can see and smell that fear and they go look at there's an easy mark that's yeah. an easy mark right there and because america is so segregated and you racist, cannot be an easy mark you know and a good story is when i was down in brazil we were down there with like l7 and the chili peppers and um nirvana and nirvana and uh, alice Alice in Chains and uh, how many dead guys were down there that year (laughs) so uh, Lane they said you can't leave the hotel without a bodyguard it's so dangerous blah 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 Lane Lane just put his backpack on put his flip flops on and just walked right out the door man said I'll see you later I'm going to cruise around were you in Rio or Sao Paulo we were in Sao Paulo yeah that's 
That's even scarier than Rio, but yeah, it's a crazy town. But I'm just telling you, he also was not rescued, and he also was all the primary ingredients of being a, a person of that generation, right? We already had the basics of, you're responsible for you, dude. Yep. Right? You have a generation of people, they don't think they're responsible for themselves. Their moms are, their dads are, society is, the government is, this person is, that. It's all mitigated, right? So, so my whole book is about how to like just just veer away from some of these tendencies we've adopted over the last 20 years. Like, don't rescue your kids so much. Make a determination in your heart and soul of when your kid is should be fully responsible for themselves, and then it's your job to teach them and prepare them for that time, right? You should say... You know, I used to always, my dad used to tell me, you're going to be 18, you're going to be out of here, you're not going to be my problem anymore. I, so, I so agree with you on this. <laughs> you're not going to be my know, problem your anymore. Job, your single job as a parent is to prepare your kids for life. Uh, yeah. Outside of not your Not be their home. best friends. Not be their best friends. Yeah, I so agree sure. with you, man. So, yeah, do you like to be liked? Do you, have to have, do you like to have good relations with your kids? Yeah, but there's a more important thing going on, and that is preparing them for adulthood. When you're not around. Around. Right. Or for when you're not around. Right. Yeah. I never thought of that. Jesus, that's dark. <laughs> well, we're older dads. <laughs> oh, my God. No, I, I'm not the oldest dad. I just heard of a dad on Saturday at Gibby's book signing. The dude, listen to this spread. Oh, my God. The guy has a 55-year-old son and a two-year-old daughter. Oh, nice. <laughs> Think of that. How old is his wife? I don't know. He's got to be young. From right? Costa Rica. But, I mean, uh, that's that's amazing. But that's the modern world. I don't think you had that in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s. No way did you have that. That's a modern thing. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, but, you know, prepare your kids. How about just prepare your kids to deal with what comes at them? I mean, I, I think of all the people you mentioned like, all of us were prepared for what was going to come at us. Nothing through any of the 25 people you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. You get dropped from your record label, you'll figure it out. You bass player quits, you'll figure it out. This kind of, I don't need to consult with my mommy because my bass player quit. Go find another bass player, right? I remember when Rob quit... Um, we were looking for a bass player and it was kind of hard at first we got wag and wag was in mary's danish and it was hard to be in two bands and um and um i think duff mckagan told me about this guy todd that worked for them as worked for guns and roses that was a really great guy and (coughs) heavy drinker and fun guy and loved all the right type of music and was a bass player his name was todd right and so I call the guy Todd. I say, listen, it's the only sponsor looking for a bass player. Do you inter- would you want to come and jam with us and see how it goes? And he said, oh, yeah, man, I love you guys. Yeah. I go, what are you doing right now? It was really loud. It was like noon on a weekday. I go, what, what's going on right now? And he goes, oh, just listen to some Marvin Gaye, having a few drinks. <laughs> Like, listen to that. At 12 noon on a weekday, Mike, he was blasting Marvin Gaye having a few drinks. I said, dude, if you can even play two notes, you're in the band. (laughs) (laughs) He passed the audition before he played. Right. He's listening to Marvin Gaye getting drunk. 
Like yeah. that's a bass, and you play bass. You sure you play bass the one with four strings? Yeah. <laughs> You're in. You're <laughs> in. <laughs> well, he goes on that. He goes, yeah, but that's I got to go on tour with those guys. He's the guy that died on the road with them, oh. Todd, and he's the reason why they always sang Knocking on Heaven's Door because of that guy. What a great full of life guy. I only talked to him for like 40 minutes. Amazing. And I was like, We've, I found our bass player. <laughs> guys listen to Marvin Gaye getting drunk in the middle of that morning. <laughs> like, You're hired. <laughs> he's in. <laughs> Can't wait till this guy gets back from Guns N' Roses tour. Oh my God. And he died on that tour. Now, I think the reason that they play uh, Knocking on Heaven's Door is because we used to play that song all the time in the well, clubs when I mean, they were opening up for us. They, so yeah, but the us. sentiment supposedly is about this guy Todd. He was, he was like the, like how I am to the Chili Peppers, he was like that to them. So, writing this book, working on this idea of going around and there's a lot of new stuff going on in drug treatment that uh has nothing to do with the standard stuff we do here at aloe we're at aloe by the way in one of the group rooms tonight aloe um, house aloe house i always get it wrong but uh but there's these programs like like um ayahuasca i'm gonna go me and evan are gonna go videotape that and me meet some people that did that and then we're gonna go um to it's weird they have these implants uh, 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 suboxone implants i want to talk to some of those people does it really does it really make you not have cravings because apparently the claim is with this suboxone implant cravings are reduced and people don't want to use drugs i i find that kind of hard to believe so i want to meet a bunch of people on it wow. like how could because i know suboxone orally doesn't make people not want to use so why would an implant of it make you not want to use is that just a drug company hustle claim i want to meet drug addicts that have had the implant and them tell me yeah i don't i, I feel differently i don't have as many cravings i don't want to use as much or whatever but uh, one of my friends had the 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 implant oh did, did yeah. it work well he couldn't, <laughs> he couldn't use he couldn't he couldn't take opiates I know, but did he have cravings for it? Did he drink alcohol? Uh, no. See, he stayed sober. He but did? He had, well, yeah, when I met him, he had an implant in. And he said, you know, I, I think it was a deterrent. I'm not sure. How long do you keep it in for? I think it dissolves. They don't take yeah, it Yeah, you have to fill it every 90 days. You have to oh, get a I new one every 90 that, days. I have no idea. When he, when he showed me a little scar and he said he, he had an implant, uh, I, was, I imagine that was it, you know? No, but you, it either... Well, you have to get it. It's a, I think it's a little thing. This was years ago, though. Is it new? The Suboxone one is new. They used to have Naltrexone implants. That's the one. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, that, that's, just, that's just an opiate bark. That's like, that's like taking this stuff for alcohol. The, that's like, um, what's the thing about alcohol makes you sick abuse. if you drink? Yeah, it's like an abuse for opiates. Yeah. Oh, okay. But no, this is Suboxone. This is synthetic opiate, but supposedly... A, you know, it's like Suboxone, the replacement that I used to be against. What if it malfunctions for? and just all pours in your system all at once? Listen, you people got fucking heart valves. What if they don't go off? <laughs> what if they don't open? You're like, uh, no, I'll just take that. It's a new technology. Might leak. I'll just take that chance. Put it in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, if it's 90 days of 8 milligrams Suboxone, how much is that? Um, Fuck. Like, that's a lot. So 8 times 30 is 240. Um, yeah, 720 milligrams of morphine could drip inside you if the thing broke. Yeah. That would be the greatest day ever. 
<laughs> fucking punched in the stomach or you fall down drunk and break the thing? I don't know. What the... F- <laughs> You're the only person that if you got a, if you got a suboxone implant, you would hope it misfired and overdose. Hit <laughs> <laughs> your stomach with a hammer to break it, make it break open like yeah. a safe. Yeah. Were you? Where was I with you with a safe one time trying to break open a safe with a hammer? Oh, probably. I can. I, uh, I think so. Really? You just were. Yeah. I don't Did know we steal where. it or something? I think we found it and then we wanted to open it just to see what was inside. Because I was thinking about, I was thinking a lot about how uh, we were in Thelonious Monster and how we used to fight on stage. And uh, the one time in New Orleans when I hit you with the guitar, and I'm thinking, I have a distorted view of that because I know I didn't hit you hard because... You were always so drunk, you couldn't do Yeah, I must have missed you and just glanced you, off you. You knocked yourself then, out one time. Right. And trying San to Francisco. hit me. Yeah. yeah, you tried to hit me and you not hit yourself. Yeah, that's that was. Let's golden. let's just let the people at home soak that in for a second. Mike, you know, listen, so l- l- the listen. dynamic when Mike Mart was in Thelonious Monster was 1988, 89, probably out by ninety, right? Three years or something. No, uh, about ninety three, I think. Okay, ninety two, so 88, 89, 90, 91, 92. By the time you go get sober, and I had in. not only gotten fired, I had quit a bunch of times too. So okay. it was an equal amount of like quitting okay. and firing. But the dy- it always changed the dynamic of Mike being in charge because he's kind of in charge of the music. Was Pete usually picked on me, and then everyone else remained silent. But when you were in the band, Pete would pick on me, then I would pick on you, then you would hit me. Or try to hit. What me. about Dix? Do you remember when Dix lost his mind and hit you with his guitar? Mm, probably. Where was it, in Holland or yeah. some? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. you were such an antagonist that you got the <laughs> nicest guy in the world <laughs> so mad that I don't. Maybe he didn't hit you. Maybe he just broke his guitar and walked off. That might. Yeah, have been he might have been. Well, he doesn't seem like a hit you guy. You're, no. you know, me and Peter hitters. You're a hitter. Oh like, yeah, well, and uh, in that and that uh, that thing in Arizona with that riot thing, yeah, Pete jumped over his jumps with a yeah. He was a vent. He had a, you know, everybody's he had got your back, those, man. He had my back in the end, but yeah. I don't think they were really gonna hurt me. I, but I you, yeah, well, you would start a fight and then run. Yeah, you know, I know and let everybody run. else take it. So, but but that san francisco thing i remember it so well because i was kind of semi-sober and you're so drunk and we're we're all oh, looking at each other in the god. dressing room like oh my god and it was a pretty big show in san francisco and it's like oh my god mike's gonna ruin this and then there was no sobering you up it was if you remember back to the bogart days back to earlier i would try to get you to do coke so you would sober up from alcohol sure. and i would give you a bunch of coke like and crack sure. Like Chris Gates one crack. time. Let's Chris Gates shot crack. me up with with a speed one time to get me to wake calm up. down, you know, <laughs> get me to wake up and do a show in Texas. <laughs> so, so that whole era, I just remember the dynamic of Thelony Monster change. It wasn't just me and Pete. Now it was you, and you were this thing that bothered both of us and yeah. then we kind yeah. of aligned about it. And then I could pick on you. He wouldn't really pick on you. He would just always look at me. You know why? Because he felt like he, Mike's in the band because of you. You yep. fucking deal with this. Right. And then and I, I was almost un- deal with I it. was intolerable. You know, I have to like, I have to say that if Pete's listening or you or anybody that amends are being made right now on this microphone, because like I was intolerable. And I think back about how 
How did you guys, you know, how did you guys even because, keep me in the band? Because stormy weather was so good. I mean, honestly, when you're a musician, well, I think back in our time, you knew you could recognize talent. Right nowadays, I don't know that they can recognize talent. Like the way that you changed Thelonious Monster once you were in it and made Stormy Weather have this flair about it that we had never had before and we never had after. I was magical. Though four of the members were still the same. Me, Rob, Chris, Dix, and Pete. Still four of the same guys that made Next Saturday Afternoon and made Beautiful Mess. There's this one kind of... You brought this gun clubby Tex and the Horseheads sloppy kind sort of, of sloppiness to sort of this thing and it just worked and so you're going to tolerate a guy that can bring that much difference and that much greatness to something and so that's why you were tolerated trust there me were different if things. you hadn't helped make stormy weather you would not have been tolerated yeah. Each album of Thelonious Monster, if you look back, is so uh, is so influenced by the members of the band. Like yeah, when Stobau and John Huck were in it, it was like completely different. It's like an art band. and tree, yeah. and then, you know. And then it turned and it just morphed and morphed, which is which is good because bands need to change. You know, bands need to change to stay alive. Well, yeah, so, but then it got cornered in this bad, corny rock kind of corner that we couldn't get out of. You know, by that time, I'm so on drugs, you can't really get out of it. Like, after Beautiful Mess was just this kind of corny rock thing that, how do, how do we get back? How do we go back to what we were doing? Like, we need to start over, and by that time, we were disintegrating. It was impossible. But, I, you know, I've talked to Chris Hansen, and he was like, my intention was we need to go back to what we used to do, back to the things that we like. Like, here's another thing that's interesting about the involvement of the band. I don't think anybody really liked the bands, other than me, I don't think anybody really liked the bands that Beautiful Mess was reflective of. The Replacement, right. Soul Asylum, R.E.M. Um, I don't think any of, I don't think Chris, Pete, Dix liked that kind of music, right? No, that was your stamp. That was my thing. That was your stamp. So we cornered ourselves into this corny rock corner and Chris is saying we need to go back to public image and gang of four and real fucking music that we grew up liking and I remember thinking nobody wants to hear that shit because now by this time I'm only playing music to please some invisible audience that doesn't exist you know what I mean yeah. and I was right because so many bands that kind of played that Thelonious Monster beautiful mess music were so successful I can tell you people that were influenced by that version of Thelonious Monster. Counting Crows, mm -hmm. Soul Asylum. Like yeah. it, it was a cyclical influence, right? To try to write, you know, just like songs like Runaway Train or whatever, like write to me and Mr. Jones that Counting Crows. Yeah, right. That was that thing. But honestly, it was me who pulled the band in that direction and nobody in the band liked that kind of music. And I think that led to an artistic deadness to it that we could blame the drugs and alcohol. But I think once you've cornered yourself and you don't know where to turn or how to get out of it, see, if you look at the first album is very punk rock, very Stobau and Chris and kind of, 
you know, our attempt to be a punk rock band or whatever it is. And it came out this hodgepodge cool thing. Then we get a little more sophisticated. Huck takes over more. He's really a musician. He wants to be a good musician. He wants things to be like Gang of Four or, you know what I mean? Or, or Wire, The Stranglers or yeah, whatever. Yeah, he had a deep... He uh, had an artist, you know, that. And Chris loves that and Dix loves that. And so next Saturday afternoon kind of has that and it kind of has me joking around and then stormy weather has you come in it, make it more like gun club and rock and roll and sloppy rock and roll rolling stones. And then there was nobody taken over by 92. So I just thought, well, I like replacements. I like, you know, soul song. I like that type of music. So we'll just, we'll just do that. And so I wrote a lot of the songs and they were just basic, bad, dumb songs. And, and in the end, that's what you get. You get this kind of pretty good songwriting, but it's just corny, middle-of-the-road rock music. Nothing special about it. And then where are we going to go from there? There's no way to go back. There's no way to, there's nowhere forward to go. And so it just kind of blew up. Which, you know, and I don't even, I don't regret much of it. I do regret, like what you're saying, Mike, that that I didn't treat the people that loved me very well. And for forever I'll try to make amends for it and, and make it right. And it might, here's an interesting thing for you that, at home that have a lot of grief and regret and, and, and kind of uh, amends to make. I never get too bent out of shape about it anymore like um you know you may not be able to ever make it right with the people that you fucked under i feel like i i i could never make it up to pete and chris and dicks and and certainly not to people that are dead to people that ended up dying before i got sober there's no way i can make it right i can't go back and then apologize or retake back some of the things I said or did. So at a certain point, you just try to have the best relationships you can with the people you fucked under. They have the right to not forgive you. You can be cooler to people now, right? So, so I'm talking about amends to Pete and Chris and Dix. I right. own them right. a lot of amends. I don't think that I can make it right. I can't go back and make the world right. I can't go make, back and take back all the shitty things that I did. And they might not forgive me, and that's okay. That's their right to not forgive me, right? Right. But the fact is, I can have be responsible for my relationships I have now, which is I can be cool to people, I can be fair to people, and though I can't maybe go back and make the past right in that amends way, I can learn from being an asshole and selfish and not be that way in my new life with my new people that I work with. And I think that a lot of people in the 12-step world get all caught up that they need to be forgiven by these people that they fucked under, whether it's their parents or their bandmates. I don't think that they owe you uh, accepting that. I, I think that AA kind of is a little weird. Like, I, I really had a negative, dramatic effect on Dixon, Chris and Pete's life. Yes. There's no way that I can change it. I feel bad about it. I wished it never happened. I'm a different person now. But still, it is what it is. 
and they're either going to forgive it or not forgive it. You can't be so caught up in making that right. Just don't be like that anymore. Be cool to people. Don't rip people off. Be fair in business. Be fair with your word. Be trustworthy. All the things that I betrayed Chris and Pete and Dix about, don't do that to Evan and Jared and people I work with now. Don't continue that on. And- right. How come that's not more emphasized in the 12-step world? So anyways, we're just talking about you know, parenting. And, and if you're a parent out there, let your kid fucking fall down without rescuing them. Like be there for them, be present with them, but don't run and rescue and have to make their feelings go away. Kids fall down. That's what they do. That's what they, how they learn. If you rescue them when they're two, you're going to be rescuing them when they're 12. You're going to be rescuing them when they're 26. When they're 26, you're going to be rescuing forever. The magic number. It's okay not to rescue your children. It's, just, it's okay just to love and support and try to prepare your children for adulthood. And really, you don't want to watch them die. You know, if they, if they, it, a lot of this breeds like drug addicts, you know? Well, that's, that want to that, stay home. So now that's you're getting other, too harsh. That makes, but, but that's where my book leads. And we'll talk about it when we have Dina on. Next, next episode, we're going to, next time, we're going to have Dina, the guy, woman okay. I'm co writing the book with. Great. I'm co writing a book called. How to keep your kid out of rehab, and it's a nothing bolts thing of how to how to all the warning signs to look for in yourself, in how you're raising your two and five and ten and twelve and fourteen year olds, and then certainly how to deal with them as eighteen, twenty two, and twenty six year olds. Great. All right. Till next time. See you later. Don't die. And next week is Paul Rossler. Don't die. Thank you. See you later. <laughs>